This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell. I'm glad you're with me. Now, it's hardly a deep insight to say that the country's more divided than ever, but in a moment, I'm going to share with you a solution. I'm going to also give you one of those money-back guarantees with my conversation with tech expert, CEO of Garibaldi Capital, Brent Holiday. They spend their time searching out and arranging finance for quality tech companies, you know what, that most of us have never heard of. The bottom line, though, he's always fascinating. I've also got a shocking stat on the state of the federal government's finances, plus Ozzy Jurek's going to drop by to talk about one of the hottest sectors in real estate. And Victor Dare, live from the trading desk, on the market crash in the world's second biggest economy. And I'm going to finish with a goofy award that literally had me saying, are you freaking kidding me? But first, a recent Pew Centre poll found that 61% of Canadians think the country's more divided than before the pandemic. Only 36% think it's more united. And I suspect with a federal election around the corner and the politics of division, the go-to strategy, the divisions within the country, the nastiness, disrespect that underline our political debates will intensify. I mean, I've already heard some attack ads that are simply not true. They're designed to deceive people who are not paying close attention to politics. Well, okay, they're lying to us. It's not unusual to hear a lot of name-calling and hate-filled emotion motivated by the unforgivable crime of having a different point of view. There's no escaping that the nature of our discussions are confrontational. At times, even toward violence. All the talk about respecting diversity is a hollow boast when it comes to opinions. The so-called progressive agenda, which dominates so many issues, is not looking for compromise. It demands 100% adherence. Boy, the division on so many issues is just insurmountable. Think of things like climate change or the pipeline debate or something so fundamental as who's going to pay for government services. You know, on the one side, we've got groups, many in the environmental movement or public sector unions and others, who describe themselves as being on the progressive left, saying no to pipelines and no to the oil industry while favoring government intervention over competition in a growing number of areas. Many describe themselves as anti-capitalists, extolling the virtues of ever-increasing government involvement, while worries over deficit or debt are far down the list of concerns. They support high levels of regulation and a large government bureaucracy. This group emphasizes wealth redistribution, social justice, and the collection, uh, collective over the individual. But then you've got this other side. A lot of the people in business, entrepreneurs, individuals who emphasize individual responsibility over the collective. They support lower levels of regulation, moderate taxation, reduced size of government and free speech. And they do worry about the size of the deficit. But the two groups are fundamentally in disagreement, especially over whose money is it. One side believes that the money belongs to government. The debate should be how much money government lets you keep. The other side believes the money belongs to the person who earned it. And the political debate should focus on how much you send in taxes to government. Now, I want you to be clear. My point isn't to criticize either point of view, but rather to point out that they are irreconcilable, the source of ever-increasing discord and rancor in society. There's no real meaningful exchange of ideas. There's no real dialogue, just constant stating and restating of positions. I can't believe that no matter what side of the issue you're on, though, anyone thinks the current level of disharmony is beneficial to society especially if it escalates into violence like we've seen in the States. So my point is I have a solution. I invite you to think about it. 
Let's separate the two opposing groups. Put them in different parts of the country. One side of the country feature broader government intervention, more regulation, higher individual tax rates aimed at the top 10% of income earners. That starts about 90, 95,000. And a wealth tax for the top 1%. Plus increased taxation of mid and large businesses with the focus on greater wealth redistribution and supporting a larger government bureaucracy. In this part of the country, though, government's role in society will be constantly increasing. For example, in areas like the media and the regulation of internet content, the workforce will be unionized and they'll have government monopolies in healthcare, education, daycare, senior care, with the economic policy reflecting the views of today's, I guess you call themselves, they call themselves rather, self-labeled progressives. The other region, though, will have lower personal business taxes. The public sector will be smaller as government focuses only on core services like healthcare, education, trade, and defense. Public sector salaries and benefits would be on the same level as the private sector. On this side of the country, they'd welcome resource industries and eliminate corporate subsidies and bailouts. In other words, the two areas reflect the major philosophical divisions that are so obvious in society today. And the benefit would be immediate. Come on, confrontation, vitriol, nastiness would be dramatically reduced in each side of the country. Mission accomplished, more harmonious society. Now, let me ask you an important question, though. And I know some people won't appreciate it, but let's visit the two regions, say, in 10 years. See which one has a higher standard of living. Has more money for schools, hospitals, senior care, less unemployment, higher wages. Because I don't think it'll be close. Because any jurisdiction that hasn't figured out that wealth creation is the foundation of wealth redistribution has ended up with far less levels of economic growth, lower levels of economic growth, less innovation, lower standard of living. Now, here's the real elephant in the room that's not popular to mention. The jurisdiction with the emphasis on big government, more regulation, higher taxes, can't survive without the entrepreneurs and business people in the other region. But, and it's a very telling but, those who live in the region that focuses first on a strong economy, supports a strong business sector, can survive with those that don't. Hey, just a solution. Why don't we all be happy? I'll take a break. I'll come back, though. I've got Mike Levy on the line here. I've also got Brent Holiday is going to join me. Brent, uh, talking about all things technology. I love my conversations with Brent. He'll be with me coming up. I've also got a great quote of the week. I've got a shocking stat. And I've got a goofy award along with Ozzy Jurek. He's getting ready. I've got Victor Dare live from the trading desk. I'm glad you're with me. You're listening to Money Talks. Right now, Michael Levy joins me on the line now. Hey, Mike, speaking of technology, uh, maybe you saw the fourth quarter earnings. Oh, uh, I, I certainly did, Mike. Just before we go to that, though, I would really like to just make a comment on your comment. And when you said, like, splitting the country in half and half will be for the progressives half will be for those who want to work have an incentive to work make more and by the way be able to pay for the things that have to be paid for and you know my question becomes where does the revenue come from for the progressive half of the country because the minute you start taking away the incentive to earn by taxing on such a significant level, incentive to earn goes away, which means incentive for government to tax those earnings is not there because there's nothing to tax. 
And, you know, just to remind, remind people that uh, at the early part of the last century into almost the 1930s or 40s, the highest marginal tax rate was 92%. 92%. Why would I want to go out and earn any more money than it just takes me to live comfortably if the government's going to take it all? And then you've got a split country like you're talking about, but nobody's producing the revenue to go ahead with all those programs that the progressives want. Well, you've just expressed why we have to split the country up, because there'd be a lot of people who disagree. Obviously, we've got that, uh, you know, people are out there. I've, you know, I've always had that uh, ridiculous statement that who benefits from a weak economy? I say ridiculous because some people actually think it is. I'm going, it's a fundamental. Without wealth creation, you can't wealth redistribute uh, redistribute the wealth. So there you go. But that is a controversial uh, concept. I mean, this is the essence of the debate going on. And speaking of that, though, let's come back to the tech uh, earnings for a second. I mean, I looked down the list there and man. They, I mean, we know they're the big winners in the pandemic or certainly some of the big winners. But boy, did that translate into higher revenues. Well, we've always been talking about that the tech companies were going to be the big winners, especially with people locked up, locked in home and doing everything uh, from basically their home, their home computers and uh, their shopping online, their streaming. And then you take a look at these fourth quarter earnings and Apple's fourth quarter revenue. Listen to this it was eighty one point four billion dollars. That was up. 36% from last yeah. year. And, and for Apple, it was the 5G compatible phones were in high demand. Alphabet had $51 billion in revenue. That was $5 billion or 10% over estimates. Microsoft sales and profits higher than estimates for the 10th straight quarter at $1.4 billion, up 21% from a year earlier. And the market value of Microsoft, Microsoft now tops $2 trillion. So what we thought was going to happen has translated like in stark black and white to what did happen and significantly more than anybody thought. Yeah, just a quick one on Microsoft. I, I think you misspoke. You said it was $1.4 billion. No, there, it was the 10th quarter at $14 billion. $14 billion. Uh, 14 yeah. Billion. yeah. yeah. Now, up yeah. 21%, as you said, though. I mean, that's the big thing is these growth numbers. And I mean, obviously, there's the demand is still there. Just reading an article about the 5G compatible phone in Apple is at such high demand. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that backstop this. And uh, it's interesting, though. The big challenge, uh, I think, for investors, though, is what to what degree are you paying for those? Have those kind of uh, future growth been anticipated uh, further? I mean, it, it, so to have that kind of earnings performance is, excuse me, spectacular. But it doesn't necessarily mean the stock price is going to continue to respond the way it has been. I'm just putting that out as a caveat, as a warning out there, because the whole key isn't just what the story is, is what price you're paying for the story. But that story is sure attractive when we talk about big tech. Well, it is, Mike. But when you take a look at the stock market reaction to these blockbuster earnings, in fact, some of the stocks day after and day after that were down and not up. So. Uh, the, the investor is asking, has this reached its pinnacle? Can they keep doing this, especially mm-hmm. as we get back into normal, what we would call normal living? And uh, are they going to hold those numbers? And in fact, tech stocks started to sell off, particularly Apple. But uh, uh, it, it, did, it did and does reflect what was happening during the pandemic. And boy, these numbers sure show the significantly lower lower anticipation that 
that the analysts had. And in fact, people were hitting the tech sector with everything they had while they were home. And look at the earnings. Yeah. Let me just, this is related to that. Uh, speaking of big earnings, I'm looking at Pfizer BioNTech in the vaccine, and I've been looking up like the windfall that they've got from the widespread adoption, obviously, and demand for it. And, you know, it also begs the question, what's next for them? But in the meantime, man, they're going to be rolling in the dough. They are. The uh, COVID-19 uh, a vaccine for uh, Pfizer BioNTech uh, is uh, estimated, and it's going to be $33.5 billion in revenue this year. $7.8 billion in the second quarter alone. And uh, projections, uh, if, if projections are met, the vaccine, listen to this, the vaccine will be the world's biggest blockbuster medicine ever. There would never be before this. I'm talking about all sorts of vaccines, smallpox, you can go to a couple of the cancer drugs that have been developed that were huge winners. But this Pfizer-BioNTech, this vaccine is going to be the COVID vaccine will be the biggest one ever. And uh, as demand started to wane, the Delta variant has now once again spurred demand. And what's going on with the Delta variant is now putting that demand right back up again. So, boy, not only was, but is going to be. And that's where it differs from the text. The text may be a little softer, sell off a little bit from the pharmas and particularly Pfizer-BioNTech. It could keep going and keep increasing revenues and profits. Well, of course, uh, you saw Israel announced the third dose coming up, and there's a lot of talk about whether we'll, we'll go in a more official third dose. But the other thing, you know, Mike, that people don't appreciate is their uh, COVID-19 vaccine actually is still not fully approved down in the States by the uh, Drug Administration. It's on this emergency footing at this point, and I'm reading lots of stuff about how they're pushing forward to have this uh, you know, adapted, you know, as a regular, as I say, out, out of that emergency designation, which if you recall, uh, a lot of people were worried it was rushed through or what have you. But in the end, uh, they're about to get the formal, uh, uh, let's hope it is, but it looks, I don't, I doubt that it's not going to change, but it'll be well, the formal acceptance and, and full approval. Well, Mike, and, and that is probably going to happen this fall. And when it does, then you're going to see an avalanche of more shots, more vaccines, and mm -hmm. they're talking about now uh, they're in clinical trials um, for a uh, oral vaccine, and that will make a huge difference, especially to some of the anti-vaxxers. And by the way, Pfizer-BioNTech is now in clinical trials on an mRNA, and that's the kind of vaccine it is, flu shot coming up next, and they're approaching it the same way they approach COVID. So, I mean, this is a field that's expanding uh, just almost unbelievably. And with what we're looking at in the future, this could be small potatoes compared to where we're going. Oh, it's going to be incredible. Mike, thanks for taking the time. Have a good weekend. You too, Mike. Thank you. Hey, last week I was talking a little bit about uh, the challenge for people with intellectual disabilities during COVID. And I can tell you it's one that has not been addressed at all by governments. When I read studies, or I read poll results, rather, that tell us how well people think government has done, I, I think immediately of people with intellectual disabilities. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples. This is not overstating it at all. A report from Public Health England found that the first wave of COVID deaths for people with a learning disability was six times more than the average. Now we've got a brand new study, study from the London School of Hygiene and Topical Medicine, uh, Tropical Medicine, Oxford University in Public Health, England. 
and was just published in the British Medical Journal, found risks were particularly high for those people with profound learning disabilities like Down syndrome. In fact, are you listening? Among COVID patients with Down syndrome, the risk of dying from infection was 36 times higher than in the general population. Overall, if you looked at the numbers, people with intellectual disabilities were eight times more likely to die when you look at the death rate. And there's more studies like that. We have not been interested whatsoever about that stuff in Canada. I was critical right from the get-go when they announced the lockdown. I said, what are you doing for mental health? It was not hindsight. I didn't need to wait six months to say, oh, there might be a mental health component or an addiction component. On this show, we talked immediately about it. And as I say, my concern or my uh, is that it is not that the people in power, it's not that our government and our bureaucrats sit there and say, I wonder how we can make it worse for people with an intellectual disability. I'm saying they don't even consider them, period. It's not even part of the make it and continues to be that way. I think personally, and I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do this. I think I could go a long way to eliminate individuals' political careers if I shared with you directly the lack of response we've had at Special Olympics from trying to solicit help, health-related help, for people who are participants, people with intellectual disabilities. It doesn't have to be, of course, Down syndrome. It can be many other. It could be Fragile X. It could be other things. And I'm just saying, so that's why I'm so thankful when people in our audience step up and I'm thinking of uh, Andrew Rulin at Integrated Wealth, or Joseph Schachter, uh, you know, from Schachter Research, Rob Levy from Border Gold, Justin Smith from Hawkeye Wealth, and Brad Cook, friend of ours from Endeavor Silver, Ryan Irvine, you know on this show, Keystone Financial, John McConnell from Victoria Gold, uh, Jamie Switzer, uh, thank you, you know, uh, Canaccord Genuity. And I'm giving you these names because these people should be recognized. It's people like Tyler Bullhorn and Paul, uh, you know, from Stock Scores, of course, Paul Gill from Lamico Metals, Jatinder Rai, Rai, Rai uh, Response Advertising. Uh, the list goes on. And then people stepping up for auction contributions. I'll tell you, it made my week last, uh, last week when I heard from Brad Carpenter from Solus uh, stepping up to help. And, of course, Ozzy is uh, always stepping up to help. Uh, more with Brad Cook. Uh, Ramota Bluler is just an, uh, is just an individual. And she has stepped up uh, for the last several years, big time, with a wonderful auction item. Uh, This goes on. Old friend of mine, Catherine Clark, Anthony Abrahams uh, from Emblematics, Emblematica, pardon me, Anthony. Uh, The list just keeps going on. St. George's Labor, James Cox. We should recognize these people like Greg Rosidas, Kelly Van Uyen, uh, Torin Tagus, Cesar Gomez there. We should recognize these people for the work they're doing because that's what makes our our society even better my thanks if you want to help us go to mikesmoneytalks.ca and get the details i'll come back with a quote of the week time now for the quote of the week well we've got a federal election in the offing as everyone knows that's despite the fact by the way that 27 percent of canadians think it's a good time to hold an election only 27 percent but we're going to get inundated with misleading statements outright lies, unrealistic promises of free this or free that. You know, on Mike's Money Talks, on Money Talks Tweet, I put up a, and it's a a serious poll question, one I think we should answer. Do you think the country would be better off if our political leaders and other political actors 
sidelined the spin doctors, stopped making misleading statements, told the truth and prioritized integrity? Because I sure do. But I don't, I think, I suspect I'm in the minority with that. Certainly with partisans. Because it doesn't bother partisans one bit when we hear this misleading statements, let's call them. Or the truth gets held hostage. No. But I'm going to leave it to former President Donald Trump, who summed it up beautifully with a characteristic bluntness. In quotes, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's, like, incredible. And it doesn't matter which side of the political spectrum we're talking about, which side the partisans are on. That about sums it up. And it may work for some short-term political gain, but you know what? I say they're destroying trust in government, as we're seeing reflected in poll after poll. And they're endangering the entire system in the process. I'm not, I mean, how could it possibly be be a surprise? But again, my poll question was, do you think the country would be better off if our political leaders and political actors sidelined the spin doctors, stopped making misleading statements, told the truth, and prioritized integrity? I think the country and our institutions would be far better off. But you're welcome to your opinion. Very pleased to welcome back to the show Brent Holiday, founder, CEO of Garibaldi Capital, Canada's mid-market technology financial experts looking at all things technology. Brent, thanks for finding time for us. No problem, Michael. And you know me, I always love talking technology, especially yeah, because, you, you know, as I, as I said years ago, every country, every story is going to be a technology story at some level. And, uh, you know, it's nice to see, and I know that you were mentioning this the other day, that uh, with the Olympics on and look how well we're doing in the medal count, but we're pre- doing pretty darn well with the medal count when you start talking about technology in Canada. Absolutely. Uh, it's, um, you know, if, if, if I started in this industry in technology and finance in the early 90s, and uh, we were not making the podium in the technology uh, placement, that's for sure. Uh, but it's been an incredible run lately. Um, and uh, I think the, the summary for everything I'm about to talk about is Canada in a technology uh, perspective has risen to world class. So whether it's the silver or the gold, we're, we're competing. And it's, it's quite amazing. How how active is the uh, public share market? I'm so I'm talking about whether well I guess I could talk about private equity or public equity. I mean new companies kind of thing, the development, the growth, that kind of thing. How how active is it? Well, uh, so we'll back up and we'll start in the private markets, which most of your listeners you know are kind of unaware of in terms of the size and the scope. These funds that are managed by people. Uh, and, and most of the people that fund those funds are pension funds and sovereign wealth funds and corporations. These funds, these venture capital funds, these growth equity funds, and these private equity funds are sitting on trillions of dollars. Uh, and in fact, uh, there's a term in the, in the uh, industry called dry powder, meaning money that has been raised by these funds but has not yet been invested is over $2 trillion U.S. right now. So you've got a massive, you're an economist, you've got a massive supply problem. (laughs) And uh, so what's happening is the trickle-down effect on that has been uh, increased size of rounds, increased volume of funding uh, of companies, uh, increased valuations of these private companies. And for a long time, through the last decade, it held uh, uh, private companies back from going public because they could still get uh, as much money as they wanted and not have the public scrutiny. Now, that doesn't help the retail investor. It doesn't help the public 
uh, investor. So what's happened lately is uh, the IPO market has opened up, especially in Canada. Uh, and Canadian tech companies, uh, I'll give you a stat, uh, from, from 2008 to 2018, there were eight technology companies that went public on the TSX. Now, I'm talking about the big board, not the junior capital pools, of which there are many uh, tech issues going out, but the bigger companies, one of which was Shopify. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but since 2018, uh, you know, there's been uh, 15 tech IPOs. Uh, and, and in fact, in the last eight months, there's been a whole bunch. Um, and what's happened is the doors have opened. The, my friends who do the underwriting of these uh, technology companies at, at some of the Canadian banks are so busy, I can't even talk to them. <laughs> they're, they're, it is, they are inundated. Uh, and, and it's a good thing. Uh, if you think back to the private market I talked about, I didn't, I didn't even add like another trillion dollars of angel investments, sort of individuals that invest in technology companies when they first start. All of those people all along that line, from the angel to the VC to the growth equity to the private equity, ultimately want to get liquid. They want to return capital uh, and, and make a, a, a really good return. And that only happens when you get these exits. And so not only are the funding rounds bigger right now across Canada, but the exits are getting bigger. Exits in terms of IPOs, exits in terms of M&A. It's, it's really staggering. And it's, it's something that even back in the go-go days of 99, 2000, we haven't seen it uh, like this before. At Garibaldi Capital, you, you guys look at uh, all areas of the tech sector. And I'm just wondering, when you finance, and you've done it from seed capital through to further development to, you know, to successful companies who need to grow that whole range. Mm -hmm. How do you evaluate it? And I know that's uh, like, it's almost a silly question because I'm asking you to sum up a career, but I'm just saying, <laughs> boy, I see these names come across my desk and there's so many and everybody sounds like a good idea if it worked, if you know what I mean. It's, it's, well, uh, sure. but how do you say, okay, well, this one's more viable than another. Well, um, ultimately, at the stage you're at, it depends on different things. At the angel stage, when you're looking at, uh, uh, there's, there's two uh, women that I just put some money into uh, their company. It's called Pocketed. It's a spin out of UBC, uh, incredible hustlers, and on top of that, uh, technology experts. Uh, but ultimately, what they've, they've got is not something that the angel investor doesn't look at, you know, their zero revenue, they're just getting to market. Uh, there's no, there's no, quantitative way to look at what mm -hmm. they're doing. What you do is you look at the market opportunity, you look at is their technology defensible, and then, but most of all, you, you, you focus on the team. Are these, uh, you know, are Brianna and Aria two people that are going to go through a brick wall to be successful? And that's ultimately what you make a decision on at this stage is the people, because they'll figure it out. Uh, and then when you move to the venture stage, they're looking for big markets, uh, because venture capitalists, unlike more traditional growth equity and private equity investors, they get zeros. Venture capitalists make 10 investments and two or three of them are going to be zero. They're going to get no money. But as a, a good friend of mine from the Silicon Valley said, the best thing about venture capital is you can only lose 100% of your money. Uh, you can gain much more to the upside. So they look for the big hits. Uh, they look for um, you know, the, the, the 10, 20, 30 Xs on their money. And then when you get to the next stage, when the companies have now got revenue, they're growing, it's all about growth. In the technology markets, from, from the venture stage all the way through the public markets, look at it today, it's all about growth. How fast are you growing? How fast can you continue to grow? That uh, sometimes at all costs. You've seen some uh, technology issues, especially in the U.S., 
where they're still losing money, but they're growing fast. And, mm-hmm. and that is the number one. Uh, so it's a little different than a lot of other companies out there um, uh, who are, you know, their valuation is based on how much cash they generate uh, for a technology company because the markets move so quickly. The changes happen so fast. It's all about growth. And that's how you evaluate them. So if they're growing at, you know, 50, 60 percent a year and they're already in the 20s of millions, uh, you know, that company is going to get a really hefty valuation. I'm talking with the CEO of Garibaldi Capital, Brent Holiday. Well, it's funny, you know, because one of the I, I don't know off the top of my head if I can think of another sector where people sort of go, well, I should have seen that because the, the technology then gets <laughs> yeah. inundated into their life, integrated rather into their life, lives, you know, could be yeah. a smartphone, but it could be, oh, my Google search. Or it could be, Am- I remember Amazon clearly when it was a bookseller. And I think mm-hmm. the share price that I first recognized it, and I was out there lecturing at the University of British Columbia about some of the applications of the internet when people didn't mm-hmm. quite understand it. And I remember going, I remember completely not uh, getting two parts of it. One was that they would get this sort of on-time delivery, this next day or next two-day delivery, and that allow you to return things. So that expanded their marketplace from things like books or other things that didn't have a size, really, as opposed to a piece of clothing is what I'm trying to get at. But now, of course, it didn't take long for me to go, I should have seen that. Like, there's (laughs) in tech, it's so funny because it becomes part of our lives. We go, well, I should have seen that. That's why it's well, so funny. It, it was, it's not traditional way of evaluating them. It wasn't no. the old uh, look at the balance sheet and go from there kind of stuff. And, and Warren Buffett's talked about that, how we missed yep. the tech revolution. Well, it, it, you know, Marty McFly, I think in the one back to the future, he goes back and uh, Biff gets his hands on the sports almanac and starts betting. If I was Marty McFly going back 25 years, I'd be putting it all on Amazon and Yahoo and, and yeah. all of the tech companies. Well, and then everybody's looking for the next one. I'm not necessarily to that, you know, it's going to be that raging a success, but something that's done very well. I mean, I'm always surprised as much as I look at the markets on a daily basis, I'll find two other tech companies every every week that I've never even heard of that have been trading successfully. That's how I actually come across them, like big movers who's done this. It's it's just an amazing area uh, for us to keep track of. Brent Holiday with me. Brent, uh, one of the things that I know that you've informed me about and educated me about is uh, when I get excited about uh, sort of investing in these earlier stages or seed capital kind of stuff. And you warned me, well, that's great if you're prepared to work, wait five to 10 years, you know, as things develop. And the stock market isn't that patient for that kind of stuff. Uh, investors usually aren't that patient. I know there's opportunities that way, but we're usually just not that patient. So we're uh, we're more interested, I think, in more, uh, you know, at least slightly more midsize or, or more established in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I mean, it, the, the, the path is uh, the reason, the whole reason the venture capital market exists and angel investing is, exists is the problem that you just stated, which is these companies don't become roaring successes overnight. They have to get into the market as a newcomer. They have to, you know, hire the right people. Uh, it, it takes time. It takes a lot of time. And, you know, until recently, until this real push lately, I used to say to uh, my American friends or European friends when they were calling, talking about Canadian tech companies, I might have referred to my uh, my client as a 10-year overnight success uh, because mm-hmm. the companies would take so long to get to that um, critical mass. Uh, and one of the problems was that lack of access to capital. And now uh, it's not a problem at all. Uh, it, there really is a, uh, a surplus of capital. 
these companies can hit scale faster, but it still takes time. Once they get Are to you- that size, they can hit the public markets, and that's, that's when it gets exciting. And is there a lot of merger and acquisition activity going on? Like, uh, sorry, I'm, t- I'm taking it, t- uh, showing my age, but I'm going back to uh, sort of the 70s with mining companies. And you've got a junior that had something that was, you know, production oriented, that kind of thing. And they get taken over. Is it the same sort of phenomena uh, when they get to a certain stage, bigger companies just jump right in? Yeah, using that analogy, like, you know, Newmont uh, buying up a, a ton of companies, the same idea is that the the giants out there, Google, Microsoft, Apple, uh, Oracle, they do acquire a ton of companies every year. Um, you know, Apple and Microsoft prefer to buy technology and typically and buy smaller companies, although Microsoft, you know, bought LinkedIn and a few bigger ones. Yes. Uh, but what is really important is that we needed more public companies. Uh, the health of the public markets gets better when there's a bunch of mid-sized public companies, you know, uh, from you know half a billion to ten billion valuation, rather than the uh, <laughs> the trillion dollar uh, market caps that we're getting uh, from the big big companies. You need that because you need a healthy M and A um, uh, market. That the technology companies uh, don't can't all sell to Apple and Microsoft and Google if they're not going to go public. There has to be a ton of other companies, and that's again where we go back to private equity. These they buy companies and they hold them for three to four years, and they're very active in growing them not only in capital, but in acquisitions. So a lot of these M&A transactions don't happen to the big public tech companies. Uh, A lot of them happen uh, in the private equity realm. Uh, And uh, again, with all of that capital that's Mm -hmm. out there, they're looking for ways to spend their money. If it's all about growth, I can grow organically or I can grow by acquiring this company over here that's growing. And that's really why we're seeing a really robust M&A market. Can you give me just one minute on Shopify? Now, what I'm thinking is it's now the biggest mar- uh, company on the Toronto Stock Exchange by market capitalization. It's you know, significantly bigger than you know, any of the banks, for example. Yep. And so Shopify is a great story, uh, and, and it will continue to be a great story. They just did their first billion-dollar revenue quarter. So let's, there, there's been three tech companies that have been the largest market cap companies in Canada. Mm-hmm. The first two were called Nortel and Rim. So you'd think Shopify would be nervous being the largest <laughs> market capitalized company. In fact, when Rim hit a billion a quarter in revenue in 2008 is when it was at the peak of valuation, uh, when, it, when it was the biggest company in Canada. The reason Shopify, I think, has uh, you know, a much better uh, and stable uh, source is because they are so broad. They're across the globe. Everybody uses them in multiple languages to sell things. And they've even gone, they're, they're, they're the anti-Amazon. When you go on Amazon, Amazon controls everything, your data, uh, you yes. know, the customer, the shipping, everything. When you're on uh, Shopify, they only control what the customer sees and the payment. The rest of it is up to you. And so it's, uh, it's kind of the anti-Amazon E-commerce is not going anywhere. They're the enabler of that, what we call the long tail of retailers. Um, you know, anybody can sign on to Shopify. It's affordable and get started and then grow into, into big companies. Shopify is definitely around to stay. They're, they're, they're now profitable to go along with their growth. <laughs> so it's, yeah. really, it's really amazing. Okay, so we've only got about a minute left. Tell me something that's kind of cool or neat that you guys are looking at right now or one of the areas I may not be aware of. Uh, well, it's it's that it's that thing called NFTs, non fungible tokens. Uh, if right. I uh, had a nickel for every company that's come to me in the last two months, 
with a blockchain supported or NFT uh, type of uh, business model. Um, NFTs are, uh, uh, you know, uh, I think useful if I can apply uh, for provenance, right? If I can apply an NFT that says I absolutely own this, in the, instead of in the digital world, if I could have it in the real world, like my Gretzky card, you know, mm-hmm. my Gretzky rookie card, that would be great. Uh, but these, the, the struggle that people have is you're talking about provenance or ownership or a receipt for something that is digital. And yeah. uh, uh, it, 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 it's, it's a strange world, but Vancouver's Dapper Labs is one of the leaders. They did Crypto Kitties, and now they're doing NBA Top Shot. And they have managed to figure out where that collectible mentality uh, has transferred into the digital realm and they are doing ridiculously well. So that's a world in, leader in the city. Yeah, well, I've been following that market very closely, you know, along with all of the blockchain. And so that's fascinating. Brett, as always, I've just loved having a chance to chat and we just know that we sincerely appreciate you making time for us. No problem. It's always fun. Thanks very much. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. Hey, maybe you heard this number earlier. I hope you did. It's courtesy of the Parliamentary Budget Officer, Yves Giraud. And I hope you were shocked when you heard it. And for those that didn't, the number is actually a date, 2070. That's the year the federal budget will be balanced unless there's a change in our financial approach. Citing his office's fiscal sustainability report, Parliamentary Budget Officer Yves Giraud states, in quotes, It paints a picture of unsustainability for finances, both federal and provincial combined. Now, that's thanks to the costs associated with the aging population and the massive financial problems at the provincial level. And according to Mr. Giraud, that's the big elephant in the room that nobody wants or seems to be worried about or wanting to address, end of quote. The result is as, this is a former liberal, by the way, former liberal advisor Robert Aslin and former clerk of the Privy Council Kevin Lynch state is an intergenerational transfer of debt and risk that is unprecedented. 2070. Hmm. That's a long way from the balance of the budget will balance itself by 2019, as the Prime Minister stated in the 2015 federal election. And now we've got a slew already on the unofficial federal campaign trail of billion-dollar spending announcements. Again, no talk about how that will be paid off because it's never going to be. That's not a subject that's going to be broached. I'll tell you this, though. There has never been a generation, the current one, more unwilling to work for what we want and pay for government services. We do not want to pay for government services that we demand. Instead, with a wink and a nod, we pass the debt burden on to our children and our children's children and their children. But the real problem, just so you know, is you don't get enough publicity on this, is the provincial level and the the federal government's financial wherewithal to help at the provincial level is restricted by the amount of debt that they've run up. Plus, and we've been talking about this for decades, it's a different economy, different society, different pressures on government when you have the aging population that we do. And there's a lot to talk about on that. I just thought I'd When I heard that stat, I was sincerely shocked. I looked at that and went, wow. Let me bring on Ozzie Jurek, some other wows right now. Ozzie, I've got a couple of things I wanted to talk to you about. I want to start with, you know, when the pandemic first hit and then we got the shutdown, of course, any in-person 
looking at uh, open houses for real estate, et cetera. Then when it started to recover, you know, this time last year, where you're starting to get some very good numbers, a lot of it was in the single detached area and the, and the condo market wasn't near as strong. It was improving, but not near as strong. And I want to get a quick update on that because I'm seeing a lot of numbers right now that tell me that there's been a big roar back when it comes to multifamily uh, units. Well, certainly, first of all, on the individual purchase of the single single condo uh, per se in a building, things have changed. We actually have seen maybe a buyer fatigue on the single family home. But overall, the condo market is, is sort of about even as it has been for the last four years or so. Where the real new activity is, is that multifamily. So somebody buying 50, 20, 30, 100 units, we have just a, an, an incredible rip, roaring money. Brent Holiday talked about all that cash sitting in, in funds and so on. Well, every corporation in, in the world right now is gushing cash. They're looking for some sort of return. The money is cheaper than ever. I mean, a 10-year loan at CMHC is now 1.5%. Even with a 3% income, you're going to make you're gonna make a profit, right? And so what we've seen is David Goodman reported that we have now the highest total volume recorded in the first six months since 2006, that 1.6 billion in sales is 14% higher than the absolute previous high of 2018. And in the first half this year, we have sold 45% more than the whole of 2020 total. Well, give me a, 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 a now, let's look at a couple of cities, for example. Like that's, uh, you know, Vancouver's been strong. Um, what about Victoria, for example? Yeah, a really good point, because you think, well, sleepy Vancouver Island, but CBRE, uh, Richard Ellis, they're reporting that 23 rental buildings in Greater Vancouver. I mean, 23 sold in six months, the total value of $380 million. And even in Nanaimo, there were six sales with a total value of $55 million. Mike, that means that a rental condo, we're not talking about the average condo like people move into their own unit. The rental condo is now, condo is now over 300000 per door in Victoria and Nanaimo over 200000 These are huge price increases because of the immense demand, which is, by the way, not limited to Canada, but throughout the world, and particularly the United States. Well, your point's well taken, though. If I can borrow money at one, I only have to sit there and go, okay, I can borrow money at 1.5% maybe and buy a multi-unit uh, building. And, of course, I've got other expenses that are include, you have to include in that, but the probability of making some money above uh, that kind of cost is very high, and then you get capital appreciation to brute. So, I mean, this is exactly what the Bank of Canada wants people to do is to go out, borrow that money and invest it. Yeah, and not only they're, they're, they're not building the units, right? They're simply building, yeah. uh, buying a building. But, you know, Western Wealth Capital, which is a, a BC company there in the United States, they purchased uh, well over a billion and a half in, in real estate and all multifamily units. They're right now getting peppered with offers from everywhere. They're mostly in Texas and in Arizona, and their offers come from all over the United States. Because the corporation, if they can only get 4%, they'll be, be happy. They're, they're the rental yeah. companies, the pension funds, they need to pay out 6 How are they going to do it in this kind of a 1% return market in the bank? So, But it's the amount of money that's piling in. It's quite dramatic. Well, the other thing we got, StatsCan report this week that says if you looked at the average building cost, uh, and I'm talking uh, you know, when you, when you take labor and you take materials, it's up on average 18.8% across the country. So uh, again, something that's already built, its inherent value goes up because you can't replace it. 
without, yeah. you know, without paying a lot more money. But I want to, sorry, I've only got about a minute left. I want to come to the other side though. Great. I own a building. I got to have vacancy rates. And I just give me an idea of, for example, Edmonton or Calgary, what they're looking at when it comes to rents and vacancy rates. So in Ed, in Edmonton and Calgary, the say a two-bedroom suite is about a thousand and two hundred per month in Calgary, maybe about some one thousand three hundred. That hasn't changed. The rental values are about the same, but the vacancy rates uh, you'd think that uh, that uh, they're much higher, and they are. The vacancy rate in a two-bedroom are seven and a half percent in Edmonton, six and a half percent in Calgary, and uh, but they're not much different than they were the year before. They have been. Higher vacancy uh, than in the cities, as compared to Victoria, we just talked about, where the vacancy rate is uh, 2.1% for one bedrooms and so on. The important thing for the investor to realize is: Are you buying a one-bedroom unit or a two-bedroom unit or a three-bedroom unit? And when you look at the CMHC statistics, they give it to you. You you might have a 3% vacancy in one-bedroom units and a 0% in two-bedroom units. So you should be governed by that, and you can find that out very quickly by going to CMHC and. Find out every city in Canada. Or go to ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca. You can find Ozzy Jurek, always updating. Ozzy, thanks for taking the time. Great job. Every week I go to victoradare.ca because Victor features a ton of good information, including charts on a variety of areas. And this week is no different, but I want to put a star beside it because he's talking about an event that did not get much coverage in the mainstream media here. And that was a huge market plunge in China. Uh, in their tech sector. I'm bringing Victor Adair on right now, live from the trading desk. Vic, great job on your website, victoradare.ca. But also, this is a big event. I mean, there was, a, you know, I, I don't want to call it a crash, but it felt that way when I was looking at some of the action of tech stocks in China this past week. Well, Mike, it actually was a crash in the sense that the tech stocks in China basically tripled from, uh, let's say, the lows of last year to a high in February. And from the February high to the low this past week, they were down about 40%. That's the broad tech index in Mm -hmm. China. Now, uh, the reason for that seems to be that, I'm going to call them the authorities in China, were cracking down on on big tech, sort of reining in maybe some of the the folks that were running those companies, you know, fall in line, buddy, or, you know, you're going to disappear kind of talk. The, the, the decline in the tech stocks in China pulled down the broad indices in China. Now, why does this matter? Look at America. In America, the, the broad indices are by far and away showing that American stocks are way ahead of the rest of the world. And the reason for that is big tech is really pulling the broad indices higher. And there has been a thinking in the market that the market is uh, it's, it's invulnerable. Nothing could go wrong. You know, the Fed is going to keep interest rates low forever and so on and so on and so on. Well, is the collapse or the sharp down move anyway in China, is that a black swan? That's the unexpected event. You go, holy mackerel, you know, this is going to have an impact so far doesn't seem to be. You know, it's like the American market skating on and, and, and just kind of sideways this week. However, we are going into what is seasonally one of the weaker times of the year, uh, August, after one of the strongest times of the year, July. And maybe, you know, this is a time when the black swan from China may have some impact. Now, once again, for our listeners, I'm not saying I think the market's going to fall to zero. The, the Chinese market did drop 40% or so, that's the tech indices, since in, in five months. 
I'm not saying the market's going to go down, but we are at all-time highs. The tech indexers, or the broad NASDAQ, let's say, is up more than 100% from last year's lows. It's a possibility here we have a correction. At the other side, though, it's kind of interesting to me that does this encourage money to go to the U.S. and maybe some of the money that might have been considering that massive growth in China says may and maybe not. There's just too much political risk, too much political interference. My good friend uh, Kevin Muir in Toronto was making that point on his blog, uh, The Macro Tourist. He was saying, you know, he thinks some of the, the capital that was invested in tech in China has come into the American market, and that's given that market an extra boost. You know, Mike, it kind of reminds me back in the late 90s during the dot-com boom that America was drawing capital from all over the world because they had the hottest stock market in the world, and that caused the U.S. dollar to rally. U.S. dollar was rallying even though the trade deficits, you know, were substantial. Now we got the same thing again. U.S. dollar's been strong. we got trade deficits. Like, it's unbelievable that the rest of the world sells their stuff to America. America goes into debt to buy it. But the U.S. dollar keeps going up because of the capital flow. So uh, we get, I get, get too complicated here, but capital flows are really hugely important. And we've got an American stock market at all-time highs. And this incident has happened in the second largest economy in the world. And you wonder, is the decline in China contagious to any degree to the high-flying American market? Well, as I say, I, I would really encourage people to go to victoradare.ca, have a look at the charts there, because uh, as they say, it tells a thousand, uh, a picture tells a, a story. And, and it's, I, I think it is an important event, as Victor's been alluding to. I think it is an important event to be absolutely aware of. Victor, great job. Thanks for taking the time, and I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Thanks, Mike, and uh, I hope you have a great weekend yourself. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. I got to just say this, you know, earlier this week, I was shocked to see the Prime Minister of Canada admonishing the Montreal Canadiens for drafting London Knights prospect Logan Mayu. In case you're not familiar with the situation, let me just share it with you. Logan was on loan to a Swedish third division team because the OHL season was cancelled. The then 17-year-old engaged in consensual sex with an 18-year-old woman, but then took a photo of the woman without her consent and distributed it to his teammates. This is against the law, let alone any recognizable moral code of conduct or decency. He was charged under Swedish law, but important to note, he fully cooperated with the police, did not deny anything. He apologized numerous times, both privately to the victim and publicly. He also, and this is important, he went so far as to take the unprecedented step of contacting every NHL team who he advised of his unacceptable conduct and asked not, not to be drafted, stating in quotes, being drafted in the NHL is an honor and a privilege that no one takes lightly. The NHL draft should be one of the most exciting landmark moments in a player's career. And given the circumstances, I don't feel I have demonstrated strong enough maturity or character to earn that privilege in the 2021 draft. He went on to write, I know it will take time for society to build back the trust that I have lost. And that's why I think it is best that I renounce myself from the 2021 NHL draft and ask that no one select me. Well, this incident merits two goofies. First to the Montreal Canadiens, who ignored his stated request and drafted him. I think it was 30th overall anyways at the end of the first round. And then the fallout for the player and the club began immediately in an avalanche of criticism. 
The club apologized. The owner apologized for the misjudgment. But the second Goofy goes to the prime minister, who felt the need or saw the opportunity to get front page coverage in admonishing the Canadians for drafting the now 18-year-old, saying they all owe hockey fans an apology. As the National Post, Kelly McFarlane asks, does the fact that a person was young and foolish at the time of the incident, and he has since become a transparently honest and respectable citizen, mean anything at all? I'll add that he paid a significant price already and feels so contrite that he asked not to be drafted into the NHL until he earned the honor. Well, apparently not. But you know what? When the Prime Minister stands up and says it, he invites this kind of a comment. Because when he was 28, not 17, he groped a woman and offered up the excuse that if he had known she was a member of the national press, he wouldn't have been so forward. As if it's okay to grope a woman who's not in the media. But there was no apology. Didn't own it for a moment and never did. Instead, when asked later by the media, he offered up the now infamous explanation that she experienced it differently. That is not what Logan Mayu did. Compare the maturity of his response. But it's more than that. When he was caught wearing blackface, the prime minister and well, their supporters said he should be forgiven because he was young, 29. But the prime minister doesn't offer a 17-year-old any such break. The kind of break he gave liberal minister of sport Ken Hare, accused by two women of sexual harassment, or Marwan Tabera, another liberal candidate in 2019, who was under investigation for 2015, uh, allegedly directing sexual comments and inappropriately touching a staff member. There's numerous other incidents. Arguably the most infamous has got to be ignoring allegations against General Jonathan Vance for two years until the allegations went public because of a global TV report and couldn't be ignored. But no such break for a 17-year-old who showed maturity and character by owning up fully to his offense. I want to know what was gained by the leader of our country using his office to put the spotlight on a young man who had clearly acknowledged the seriousness of his offense, showed total contrition, never tried to avoid responsibility, who didn't say the victim had experienced it differently and has already paid a steep price in terms of public humiliation. So what was gained other than the spotlight in order to rescue his own tarnished claim of being a feminist? I guess permanently branding the reputation of a young man, an 18-year-old now, 17 at the time, I guess it's considered just not too big a price to pay, which I'm sure in this age of cancel culture, there are many people who agree. I am absolutely not one of them. Just a reminder, go to Mike's Money Talks on Facebook or join me at Money Talks Tweet on Twitter. I'll keep you up to date on all sorts of things during the week. In the meantime, Thank my thanks to Phil Figueredo for a wonderful job producing, and I hope you have a wonderful long weekend. Subscribe to the Money Talks with Michael Campbell podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get your on-demand audio for the complete show, daily podcasts, and more. 